Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, Rob Daniel, editor of Electric Shadows, the website. Uh, and I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by my learned colleague, Rob Wallace. Rob. Hello, uh, I'm Rob Wallace, a film and TV editor at The Metropolis and also founder of Of All The Film Blogs. Both of which are very good reads and you should go to them immediately. Um, well, not immediately. So, after you've heard this, <laughs> after you've heard this, because this one's actually yeah, going to be pretty good, I think. Um, so this is an idea that uh, that was put forward by Rob. So Rob, would you like to talk about what we're going to be discussing in this episode? In this episode, we're going to be discussing the winter of the Western. Uh, it now seems that the uh, this current sort of you know festive period has been characterised by uh, by the Western, by Hateful Eight and Bone Tomahawk, and of course the Revenant, though. As Rob himself has recently said, it is more of a northwestern. Yes, but uh, we still think that it has you know, certain elements that you know, tie into Bone Tomahawk and to the Hateful Eight. Um, so it's funny. I was when I I'm old enough to remember when Dances with Wolves came out at the cinema, and really was kind of the uh, the rebirth of the Western and everyone said that the Western had been resurrected, that it had been dead for like yeah, for decades or had been like yeah, consigned to stunt vehicles like yeah, young guns being an MTV Western or something like that. And then suddenly there was yeah, Dances with Wolves and it was a big important Western. Um and I suppose Unforgiven came just after Dance with Wolves, I think. I think that Unforgiven probably I know that he was uh, the Clint Eastwood was sitting on that for a long time so that he was the actual age of William Money, the character from that film, so he could play it as the age that it was written. But um, but that came after Dancible Wolves. Um, and of course, the reason why the Western died, or was not was not backed, was because of Heaven's Gate. Um, the Western that actually I kind of think is now seen in a much more favourable light than, uh, than when it was first released. I think it was... Um, yeah, undoubtedly there was a lot of money waste on that uh, that was wasted on that film. Yeah, Michael Cimino was uh, an ogre on that film, like yeah, the worst kind of director, um, if all accounts by many many witnesses are to be believed. Um, and it was also yeah flopped. He could have been the worst director ever, and if it had uh, yeah been a hit, then he would have been yeah lionized. But it flopped um, and sunk. Uh, United Artists, the studio that backed it. That had been around since the time of Chaplin. And, <laughs> and Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith, they were the guys that put it together, weren't they? And uh, yeah, and this one man managed to sink the entire studio, so then it became MGM UA, didn't and it? And fortunately, the film that sunk it already had gate in the title, which meant that we didn't need to add gate as a suffix. Yes, indeed, it was it was Heaven's Gate. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um... But Heaven's Gate, well worth a look. So it laid fallow, it came back with Dancing with Wolves, that won lots of Oscars. Unforgiven came out, again, won won lots of Oscars, including Best Film. Um, And I kind of think that since then, the Western, they always say that the Western kind of like, yeah, comes and goes, but it's never really seemed to go away. We've always, yeah, there have been great Westerns since then. There have been like, yeah, Tombstone, um, and Wyatt Earp, again, a kind of a, a film that's not great, but is kind of undervalued, maybe. Um, Tombstone, I think, was the better of the Wyatt Earp films that came out at that time. Um, and Westerns have always kind of like, you know, popped up since then. It seems to be like kind of not a surefire um, recipe for a hit, but yeah. it's kind of a, but a film that could, but a genre that that can be trusted to give a certain amount of like, you know, return. I think that's because, and I think you can make the case that the Western is the American genre mm. because the Western is the American story. It's the story or, or the story that most plays into America's uh, myth of itself. Yes. The idea of, you know, forging a trail of heading out into the wilderness and making, and, you know, creating a civilization out of dust and blood. If I, uh, what would you say is your favorite Western? If you had to be, if you were to be appropriately held at gunpoint. <laughs> if I was to be held at gunpoint or on the end of a rope, um, I would... That's a really, really good question. I would say... Um, well, there are so many, but I'd say that Westerns that you have to see um, to get a really good flavour for the genre are The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, which is a John Wayne, James Stewart Western. Um 
that is the whole thing about like yeah, the the reality of the West versus the legend that everyone chooses to remember. Would you say it's the first Western anti-Western in terms of how it balanced the notions of you know the Western as conceived by John Wayne versus the re the sort of sordid reality of? I'd say it was the it was the one that John Ford most um, to that point. Um, because I think that Cheyenne Autumn is is a really, really cynical Western, and you can see that he had grown, had fallen out of love with the Western by that point. But um, I think that seeds of Man and Shot Liberty Violence are there in yeah, My Darling Clementine, which again is kind of uh, the making of a myth. Um, but Man and Shot Liberty Violence, I think, is uh, is one of the key Westerns. The Good, the Bad and the Ugly um, is, again, like, yeah, the Western as a fantasy, and a lot of the American... Yeah, westerns are fantasies as well. It's like, yeah, as you said, it's 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 the myth. But this is like a European look at the western and just the just the strangeness that like yeah, Leone brings to the west by filming it in Spain. Um, but uh, but having yeah, Clint Eastwood who took the baton from John Wayne, even though John Wayne didn't want to give it over, and was still making westerns afterwards. Um, and then I think we have like yeah, the Wild Bunch, and the Wild Bunch being kind of. Uh, important for so many different reasons um but being like a vietnam western and then yeah coming up to present day i'd say unforgiven um made in in the early 90s in 92 um was a great summation of the clint eastwood character and i will finish in a minute um and then we and we have deadwood and i think the deadwood is one of the great um evocations of the of the west and is really really well well suited by the TV format. So, Robert, in this analogy, you are still standing on a box with a rope around your neck. Yes. And and the guy's getting, you know, who the hangman's getting increasingly impatient and going, "Hey, gringo." And I'm not going to continue from that point because <laughs> that feels appalling enough. Um, I asked, I asked you for your favourite western. My favourite western, and I'm finding it really, really difficult. Do you know what? I think I might have to say just in the just in the flamboyance, and I will probably change my mind immediately and think of one a bit later. But just in the flamboyance of the way that it's told. And the fun with which it's told, um, and what it does with like kind of established yeah conventions, I would say the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, which I think is an absolutely fantastic film. But enough about me. What about you? <laughs> uh, favorite western, if I uh, probably the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. You have just <laughs> shamefully, shamefully, my God, I can't believe that I forgot that one because that is actually my favorite western. Jesus. Um, I'm not very good on on the spot. Yes, I. That is a absolute key text, um, and probably is my favourite western. But why is it yours? I think uh, it, it's got an incredibly literary, poetic feel to it. In terms, of, and it complete the whole film is about the myth of this figure about the and how he's brought low by the quote unquote coward Robert Ford. You know, that's that's you know that's what's written on his gravestone. You know, was shot and killed by the coward Robert Ford. And deconstructing the idea of, you know, for what purpose would this man have taken, would have, would have, you know, risked his own life in murdering a legend? And I think the performances are across the board brilliant, bar none. And you know, if that, if that hadn't been the year of Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men, you know, I think that Casey Affleck would have walked it. Yeah. And the absolute is beautifully shot. The the cinematography. And it's one of the few films that I feel that the use of uh, voiceover isn't lazy. It's not there for a narrative convenience. It's there as a stylistic conceit. You know, talking about Jesse James's granulated eyelids, which meant that he blinked a lot. And all these little details that form a composite picture of this man who was larger than life. Shot by Roger Deakins um, for the film that I think he should have won the Oscar for. Um, it's a really good point that you make about the granulated eye- eyelids and that he blinks more than other people because that shot is against him in like a cornfield, I think, at like a yeah, magic hour. Kind the, of like, the, uh, the, the poster shot. Yes, indeed. It's kind of like, yeah, it's five o'clock in the evening time. It's just that kind of like, yeah, wonderful twilight moment when the sky is yeah, pinky orange. Um, and of course, he's not blinking. It's the, uh, his eyes are yeah, fixed open. And it's the, again, it's the whole thing about the legend versus the myth. And the uh, dialogue or the voiceover comes a lot from the from the book there's that great line insomnia stained his eyes like soot 
And it's yeah. kind of like such a, just that kind of evocative language. It's like, yeah, why not just put that in there wholesale? And we'll be talking today about like, yeah, the Westerns and how the Western can be kind of like, yeah, shaped to be a commentary on its time. And I think that that, that Western was yeah very much the celebrity Western. It was a, yeah, a time when, and I think it's a time that's still going on now, when people don't want, when people just aspire to be famous and it's not because they have a body of work or because they've achieved something, it's they just want fame for for fame. So therefore you have a character who will who will do something like murder somebody um, and just do you know, something that's actually quite throwaway just because he has to have that fame. And the argument that Jesse James lets him do it in the, in the understanding that his time is coming to an end and this will play into his myth in the best possible way. Yes, you're right. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is probably my favourite Western. It's, um, although, it's, yeah, Good, Bad and the Ugly is also a masterpiece as well. But today we're talking about, uh, so... A trio. At the time of recording, um, The Revenant and The Hateful Eight are both out. Um, Bone Tomahawk has yet to be released. I believe uh, that's next month sometime. Yeah, 19th of February, I think. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, it's one of those nice kind of like yeah coincidences with the kind of like yeah the vagaries of yeah release schedules and things like that that we have three good westerns appearing one after another basically. Although I yeah think that you might disagree on on at least one of those. I, uh, um, yeah, there, there's at least one of those that I think is maybe a better western than it is a film. Okay, then. Well, that sounds like a good place to start. Which one's that? That would be the Revenant. The Revenant, a better western than it is a film, because the western is all about myth. And the Revenant is definitely all about that. It's, it is the the figure of the man seeking vengeance, the man who has risen from his grave to implacably pursue his foe across the desolate landscape. And while I I think the film's complete lack of commentary on just about anything <laughs> is very much to its detriment, I think that as you know, as a modern take on the classic western. That's actually probably you know it's, it it legitimizes it somewhat in a way that you know in a way that I think the film needs but the academy clearly clearly doesn't. Yes, I think you're right. I think that's a really good point. This it does take the archetypal Western revenge motif of the the dead family is kind of uh, which goes back to what well, yeah the Searchers was like a really good example of um, of a film that did that. That is a yeah a central tenet of the Western. Um, in the Western, is kind of like it's interesting to talk about the Revenant as a Western. It's um, I think it owes a lot to films like, yeah, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and those kind of like yeah you know, films that were shot on location. That kind of like you think of the Western as being like yeah you know, arid landscapes, but also there were frontiersmen on like kind of and like the Great northern borders. And... Yes, yeah, indeed, definitely. Um, and yeah, my my issue with the Revenant, you know, unlike sort of McCabe and Mrs. Miller is there's not really an art house bone in its body. It wants to... It's sort of... pretend. Pretending is a very bizarre word to use in conjunction with, you know, fictional conceits. Um, but, yeah, The Revenant, for me, was all about the revenge plot and how that's portrayed, and the immediacy of that, I thought, was its greatest strength. But every moment of it cutting away to the trees or trying to provide commentary on nature, as I've said on another podcast we've very recently done, <laughs> I found utterly uninvolving because trees and stones are impassive they do not you know silence is in itself not commentary i think that's interesting is because the thing here is that you have to go back to something that you just said is that the western is about yeah the myth and the making of a myth and you know the revenant is all about that we have this character played by leonardo dicaprio hugh glass um who ironically is a man of stone so who, who's you know whose name is one syllable away, syllable away from being a prank call? Yes, indeed, <laughs> he is. It's um, yes, if only phones were readily available back then. Um, but uh, yes, he's who has become a myth because this is the everyone's kind of saying that this is based on a true story. It's like well, it's it's based on a story of something that happened to a man you can imagine kind of like yeah in 1823 and you can imagine that um uh a lot was embellished in the, in the telling i mean this is a man who apparently crawled for 200 miles after being savaged by a bear and being left for dead by the people that he was with and um 
made a beeline for them, a slow beeline, um, to get his revenge. Well, beelines are fairly, they kind of, I think they waver. Yeah, 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 they can do, like an up and down beeline. Yes, but, um, And the thing there is that, yeah, so we have the myth, and I think that maybe the director, Alejandro Gonzalez, in Aritu, was looking at, yeah, making a film that was, that had a mythic feel to it, that the that the landscape was would be as mythic as like yeah the story that he was telling which is is true it's also what he does with birdman is it yeah i'd say in terms of his treatment of the theater as a space as as in its own way a proving ground somewhere in which you know you know you could you could argue that you know keaton's character in birdman is equally obsessed in his own way with his legacy as an actor improving himself in the theatrical space yeah I mean, you know, in Aritu's recent film, his, his, his Oscar-winning and his Oscar-nominated film, they are, they, are, they are about obsession for different reasons. And that's something that I think he's he's dealt with a lot in, in his career. I think that kind of like, yeah, he now has a genre that yeah, lends itself to that, which I think could be the reason why I yeah, think this is probably the film of his that I've enjoyed the most, although I think it has yeah, many issues, one of them being we have the mythic landscapes, Everything there is in like you know, is in the background of of the action that you're showing. Therefore, you don't need to have these um, cutaways or these longers where you just you know, focus on that. And I think that's something that he was um, that he got from the Thin Red Line, the Terence Malick film. But that was about World War Two, and that was about like you know, the biggest conflict that uh, you know, the humankind had ever seen at that point. And then you would cut away to the to the devastating effect that that was having on nature. Um, these and these you know, creatures that had it nothing to do with his conflict, and it and it seemed to have a point there. I think here it's kind of it just seems a bit more window dressing, maybe. Yeah, I think I think Malik, you know, as a as a professor in philosophy, his work does carry that sort of charge to it. You know, everything is done with such an explicit purpose in in terms of how everything comes together. That yeah, that you need the animals in that situation to provide the counterpoint. Whereas in this film, as you said, they felt they felt like window dressing. It felt like an attempt to breathe some rel- some profundity into the into this narrative that I think would have been far more satisfying had he not attempted to do so. If he had he not included the visions, had he not included all the elements that feel like you know feel more experimental, feel more art house, and had simply you know got down to business. Yeah, it's. Um... Particularly, is like a lot of that just comes back to a family, a family that that he is now avenging. You know, we have been here before with a lot of these things. Um, that said, though, I do think that the film has a lot of uh, of good things to yeah to recommend it. I think that it's a it's a good survival film. Um, it's a good it's a good action movie. Kind of like yeah, I think that uh, it proves that uh, that Inaritu can um, can stage action very well. It's uh, I think that he can when he's not getting in the way of himself, he can actually you know, tell a quite compelling story. Whether that story adds up to anything, I don't. I think that's up for debate. Um, I quite like the film's treatment of of, <coughs> of the native people, in that they clearly. Ha- I mean, as as you know, as one point the chief, one the chief says to a, a settler, says to a trader, "You people have taken everything from us." But on the other hand, they're not. These sort of nobles—they're not the sort of the noble figures of like you know. This isn't little big man. Yes, indeed. They're not these sort of passive sufferers. They you know they they take scalps. They you know they they do commit you know brutal a brutal massacre of you know of of a group of trappers. Yeah, they do kind of like yeah they are a raiding party at the beginning. They do kind of like attack and kill to get the uh, the pelts that are you know worth lots of money. which again, you can kind of see as like, like yeah, the indigenous you know, population kind of like rising coming back, up. rising up to take you know, what is being stolen from him. Um, and that's that's the one thing I found interesting in terms of the the juxtaposition of let's say let's say you know to boil it down, they represent the idea of honor or the idea of that sort of you know that that, that sort of you know very human drive to you know, to, you know, to possess something because you know throughout the film that they're uh, they're. It's a very sort of a very minor. It's quite dealt with in a minor way, but there, he's attempting to recover his daughter. Yes, who has been taken, presumably he believes, by the traders. Uh, whereas, and on the complete other end of the scale, you've got Fitzgerald, the um, uh, Tom Hardy character, who is very businesslike, who is all about what's been lost, is all about trying to make a buck, and all about survival. You know, the pragmatic side of it. And the film essentially polarizes the ideas of business and of honor. And you've got Leonardo DiCaprio walking the middle line in which honour is his business, in that, you know, the only thing left he's got to, is to kill Hardy. 
is to kill Fitzgerald. And at what point does that pass from being from being this sort of you know primal sort of or not selfless, but this this act of a man, a, a very human act, into being something that is cold and calculating and businesslike and being done for its own reasons. And what's he going to lose and if he goes through with it? It's um, I think that's a fantastic reading of the film. To be honest, it's. Um Yes, and I think that actually gives the film a lot more weight than I think that you would like to give it because it's, yes, because that's... now I want to go back and watch it again with that in mind because I think you're right. In I terms feel like of... I'm projecting that. Well, I don't know. I think it's, I think there's a case for it. I think there's a really the film is about vengeance, um, and you can read the uh, the Hugh Glass, um, which I can only hear now as that prank call. <laughs> But uh, you can you can see the story of him as being like a microcosm of what the um, indigenous population um, are are doing in in terms of getting their revenge on these people that have come in and are basically raping the land. Um, but you can also kind of like you know see that as him being twinned with his enemy um, in terms of they are both trying to retrieve their family members. The Tom Hardy character is interesting in terms of you're right he is very pragmatic. Um, but a lot of that, I think, is born from trauma that he is. Uh, well, he's he's he's, he's he, half scalped. Yes, that's right. Kind of like yeah, he has survived a um, an attack and uh, yeah, basically sees these the warrior tribes as like yeah the enemy, and that's all they are. They are just the enemy. And I thought that kind of gave him much more depth. And it wasn't. And I like the fact that it wasn't really dwelt on. It was just something that you kind of like, yeah, find out about him. But then it seems to colour everything that he does and everything that he says. In some ways, I think the same as, not to spoil it, but one of the characters in Bone Tomahawk has a similar a similar thing yeah, kind of uh, yeah, behind that. But um, So that's The Revenant, which I think is, uh, is an interesting film. And I think it's, um, and it ties in to The Hateful Eight in some ways in terms of, one, it's you know, superficially a snowy western. Um, two, I think a lot has been made of the look of the films. Um, I know they wanted to shoot The Revenant on film but couldn't because of the harsh conditions, so therefore they had to shoot digitally. Um, but, Which, uh, as far as I'm concerned, makes it you know irrelevant for any for any award you know surrounding filmmaking or cinematography. I'm, I'm afraid you know celluloid or go home. Absolutely, yes, indeed, celluloid or go home. And I think that uh, that Robert Richardson and Quentin Tarantino would agree with you on that. Um, but then we move into The Hateful Eight. Which again is kind of does is vengeance a main theme in the Hateful Eight? Uh, I would argue not to the same extent it is in Django. Yes, of which uh, the Hateful Eight was originally conceived of as a sequel. That's right. Yes, it was going to be like a... Django in White Hell, which is a play on one of the Lone Wolf and Cub title films. I think it's called White Heaven in Hell or something like that. I'm glad that it wasn't a Django film. I think I had enough of Django by the end of Django. I think that he had exhausted that character by the end. I of it. think. I mean, I think Major Marquis Warren is uh, very much like a spiritual success to that character. And that's a Sam Jackson. Character that's a Samuel Jackson character. And given the film takes place, what twenty years, fifteen, twenty years later, it is conceivable that that character was intended to be the Django figure. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed, definitely. I kind of like as like an older man, as an as an older man who had been through the Civil War and had you know played his, played his part. Uh, yeah, I think I think revenge is definitely a theme, but it's it is more again to uh, it's, it's more of a it's more of a stew than anything. Tarantino doesn't tend to focus on a single theme. He tends to have lots of inter- things he's interested in and wants to throw in there. Absolutely. And see what sort of bubbles to the surface. That's true. I mean, kind of. Uh, so just you know, very very quickly to recap the actually quite straightforward plot of The Hateful Eight um, so Kurt Russell is John Ruth, uh, the hangman um, who's taking Daisy Domagoo, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, who's having a great year who's having a great year uh, with this and Anomalisa um, she's kind of yeah, definitely come back I think um, which is great because I think she's been missed pulling an arquette? She's pulling an arquette <laughs> um, so John Ruth is taking Daisy Domagoo to be hung in the Red Rock in Red Rock. That's right. Um, but they get caught in a blizzard and they have to uh, shack up in... Um, Minnie's Haberdashery. Min- Minnie's Haberdashery. Thank you very much. Um, and there they kind of uh, meet various other people who may be ne'er-do-wells, which includes um, uh, Walton Goggins, who claims to be the sheriff or the new sheriff of Red Rock, although you know, doubt is cast around that. Tim Roth as, um, as an English hangman. Um, and Michael Madsen as a as a gunslinger, Bruce Dern as a Confederate deliriously racist general, um, still yeah licking his war wounds. 
Um, Damien Birchier. Yes, indeed, as Bob, the Mexican. Um, and who essentially plays that as a sort of um, uh, good, the bad, and the ugly, Tuco-style... Eli Wallach. Eli, yes, Eli Wallach, yes, that indeed, is it. Definitely, it's kind of... Uh, yes, he does, and it's... Um, so they essentially kind of uh, have to stay in this... Um, in this haberdashery, which is a yeah, massive convenience store, basically, like a um, an outpost um, where you get all of your supplies from. Um, and over the course of about a night or something like that, there is yeah, lots of things come to the surface and it all gets very, very wild by the end. For me, I kind of... I, I really like this film. I thought this is probably his best since Pulp Fiction. Um, wow. Which is actually not saying a huge amount because um, so you see, are you counting out? You counting out Jackie Brown? Yeah, I, I think the Jackie Brown actually is kind of like a, it's a film that, that gets better on um, at subsequent viewings, but actually is I've always found it a bit dull. Glorious Bastards was a film that I really liked, but seemed like a series of one act plays more than like a. A, a, yeah, str- a strung together narrative. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Whereas this one, I think, actually, in terms of it being a paired back narrative, does have a propulsion to it that um, that does allow there to be lots of yeah, speechifying and storytelling, but does have a yeah, real race to the finish line. And part of that, I think, is because he has just gone back to source and has done you know, Reservoir Dogs. I mean, this is... You have Tim Roth, you have Michael Madsen, you have a group of characters trapped in one location, at least one of whom... Not what they seem. Um, I think yeah, double cross. It's kind of uh... what I liked about the film actually more than the race to the finish was the speechifying. Mm. The, the race to the finish, I could sort of leave or take. What I what I tend to buy in with Tarantino is the dialogue, and it is this sort of those sort of vibrant character moments. And I don't think it's spoiling too much to say that you know if it, it, it ends in it ends in a great deal of blood. Yeah, so kind of like like every Tarantino film, there is there is a great deal of blood. Um, not for nothing are Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger second credited after him in in the closing credits, and they're the effects guys that worked on the film. They are the you know, the effects guys behind many many wonderful and gory things, including The Walking Dead. Yeah, I I had a really good time with this film. I thought it was um, I thought that the that the dialogue was good. I thought that. Um, it's just great to watch Kurt Russell chew over some really, really meaty dialogue. And uh, and sometimes, you know, the dialogue doesn't work in Tarantino films, I don't think. I think that Kill Bill is a film, and it could be because the cast just weren't up to it, but I think that a lot of Kill Bill sounds like someone trying to do a Tarantino-type you know, dialogue, and it just falls really flat. And um, there's the... Vivica A. Fox's character at the beginning when she's saying things like I beseech you in the name of my daughter to kind of like yeah to let me go or don't yeah kill me it's uh, just that's part two is that part two I think that's the opening of part one really um, yeah. that's the that's the first fight that she has in, in the house it's a, it's, a, it's a decent fight but I just find sometimes his his dialogue just doesn't ring authentic it sounds like someone trying to do a Tarantino and that's yeah doubly exacerbated by if if the cast are just not up to it, and I'd say that that a lot of the cast in Kill Bill weren't. But Michael Madsen just can do this stuff, and he's kind of uh, and he's yeah, I thought he was great in this film. Um, but what is but what is so? The Hateful Eight is a western because it has horses in it, and it has a stagecoach in it, and it has um, a, yeah a trading outpost in Wyoming. In Wyoming, and it has you know lovely. Um, Ultra Panavision, seven vistas, yeah, vistas and cinematography, and it was all yeah, shot on seven millimeter film, etc. Blah blah blah. Um, is it a western in the same way that say the Revenant is a western? And what are the themes I, that it deals with? I'm not entirely sure what I think about it in being a, a it, good I, western. I think that's the thing. I think it's a western from a modern perspective in terms of it's looking at the issues of that era. With the eyes, or uh, with you know, with a reg- with an eye to how they reflect on today, and and here you're talking about the kind of uh, the omnipresent theme of race in in the film. Yes, yeah, hugely. Uh, for which you know Samuel L. Jackson, it, it finds himself on completely the opposite side uh, uh, to you know, that which he did in Django. Yes, as yeah. the sort of house servant, the sort of servile, very how would you describe Stephen? How would you? Yes, he was kind of. Uh, yes, he is. He is the house servant. He is um, he's someone who is kind of like he's been institutionalized, I think, by the world that he's grown up in. So the 
point where he perpetuates that world and actually kind of um, takes some pleasure in Candy's sort of you know malevolence. And I think also his kind of um, benevolence of the way that he treats him. So, yeah, Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, kind of like, yeah, clearly Stephen is, yeah, someone who is in in his confidence to a certain extent. So, therefore, he doesn't want to lose that. It's everyone will... Yeah, people can live with certain things if they get a certain amount of power. And I think yeah, when he sees that... And the threat to that is there yeah, being an end of slavery... And that's something that he you know, fights against, which I actually think is a really, really interesting thing in Django, arguably more interesting than what's in, in The Hateful Eight in terms of how it deals with race. But what comes across really well in The Hateful Eight, I think, is the, um, the fact that it's made, that it's set at a time after the South has lost the war. But clearly there are still wounds that are being licked and there's... Um, so, and there are yeah, opinions that haven't been revised. Plenty of like sort of you know lost causes floating around. Yeah, um, yeah. Not the least of whom is Bruce Dern as General Sandy Smithers, who's very good. I mean, it's, again, like you know, um, Bruce Dern is is one of those actors that you just knew from sixties and seventies movies as oh, being family plot, family plot, um, yeah, silent running. Also, kind of like yeah, being kind of like a. A second fiddle to um, you know, to Peter Fonda or to you know, to Dennis Hopper in um, in the counterculture films from that time. But you always forget that actually he's a very good actor, um, and I thought he was excellent in this film. Um, yeah, he's, he's crotchety and and you know, suitably hateful. Yes, but he does have a few moments of sort of you know humanity. Yes, indeed, it's kind of. Uh, but in terms of the of it. What is this a Western about? It's um, I'd say yes. Yeah, this is a it's it's a Western. There are themes of race in there. Um, I think that is kind of like yeah, that's the main theme. It's um, justice. Well, obviously, we've got the Oswaldo Mowbray uh, has a little rumination on what separates justice from frontier justice. He does, doesn't he? And it's kind of like and it's an interesting speech that he makes in terms of the. Um, Sorry, Oswaldo Mowbray being played by Tim Roth Tim. in a role that seems very likely was written for Christoph Waltz. Yes, really does, doesn't it? It's kind of uh, it's weird. That the more we talk about the Hateful Eight, the more I kind of think what was in that film. And I think you're right. I think it is a stew. So I don't think anything really comes to the surface in terms of there's a lot of yeah things about race in there. But I would argue actually maybe not as many as Django. Um, there is a discussion of frontier justice. But that seems as much just to introduce the character of Oswaldo as to kind of like actually be any kind of like a commentary on what the film thinks of of justice. Um, there's the because its thoughts on that are certainly somewhat confused. I think they are. I mean, it's kind of like you know we we can't really give any spoilers here. But when it gets into the second half of the film, and of course, if you see the roadshow, then you have an intermission, and it then picks up in the second half with a kind of um, a recapping voiceover by Tarantino which seemed to me to be kind of like um, a real nod to Paul Thomas Anderson and like yeah kind of uh, just that style of the opening of Magnolia I know that the Tarantino says that he and Paul Thomas Anderson have yeah in have like a playful rivalry um, I would argue that Paul Thomas Anderson's films overall are much more interesting um, and there will be blurred is a much more interesting I, western. Than I, this. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a rivalry that PTA is winning cinematically, but Tarantino is winning culturally. Interesting. Yes, I think you might be right. Although we'll get to that in a second because that could be that could be what this is. This could be a cultural western because um, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, certainly not a political western. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot about race in there that ties into certain like yeah political things now. Like you know, the Tarantino has kind of um, has really associated himself with the African American community in the states, going on um, protests about the worrying number of uh, yeah police related yeah, sh- shootings and brutalities and. No, I think I think you've hit the nail on on the head there. I think it is a cultural western in that it uses the visual style of the western um, and the, the archetypes. The archetypes, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it uses the kind of uh, the conventions of what you expect from a western, including an Ennio Morricone score. Straight to have not taken from a western. No, it's kind of uh, well. There were some original music cues, weren't there? Which is, um, I'd like to know how original the music cues were because um, see, Morricone is a incredibly prolific composer and I think he has a um a folder of music that he can just yeah go into and just get a western theme from that hasn't been used but it's like a reworking of something it's um 
mean, I was uh, listening to the audio commentary for What Have You Done to Solange? And that was made in 1972, and Morricone did the score for that, and that was one of 29 films for which he was credited that year. (laughs) So I think there are certain things that he will just revisit. So anyway... But um, there's also source music in there as well, in terms of like, yeah, he uses music from the thing, doesn't he? It's kind of, which is, which is used very well. But, but again, it's like, yeah, he is a, you're right, it is a cultural stew. Um, this is, that's, that's what he does. That's why his films are like, yeah, at once interesting and you can easily put them to one side because. You never walk away from a Tarantino film feeling like you experienced something. Well, sorry, I wouldn't say never. In the, you haven't, you, you don't, in the last 20 years, I don't think it's a Tarantino film that you know people walked away from thinking mean, that was truly revelatory. No, and I think the reason for that is because he did that with his first two movies, and he had an amazing one-two punch in his first two films. I mean, I think that Reservoir Dogs is still his best film um, because I think it's one of it is a perfect script. Um, it is lean. I think it clocks in at about ninety-five minutes. It's, um, but you still have like yeah, the wonderful dialogue there. You still have the great stories in there. It is a film. It's kind of like yeah, it's, it's all set in one location, but much like the Hateful Eight, it has to be seen as as a film. It could be adapted for the stage, and I think the Reservoir Dogs has been adapted for the stage before. Um, but it looks, it is amazingly well shot. It kind of uh, yeah, it works wonderfully well as a film. And also, kind of you know, reintroduced, I think the yeah the guys in in the black suits and the white shirts with the black ties as well, which kind of like was there with the Blues Brothers and things like that. But kind of like yeah, this really like, yeah, made an impact at this point. I think as much as because of the posters and all those things that hung on a million students' walls, my own included, as the film itself. But uh, I've seen you in your Scarface suit too. So yes, and yeah, indeed, it's kind of like which is the inverse, isn't it? It's kind of uh, but um, so white suit and black shirt, Pulp Fiction. That just defined an era. That, that was you know, like a zeitgeist movie. That sort of you know um, a narratively ambitious, culturally savvy genre piece. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's, the, it's a film. Yeah, it's pretty hard, hard. It's pretty hard to overstate its significance to well to nineties cinema, especially. Mm. Uh, you know, again, the fact you know lessened you know it, only aided by the fact that it was an it was an indie film. Yeah, indeed. I, kind of, I, mean, I think that film, it's not... I'm sure that lots of people would disagree, but that film really established, like, yeah, 90s cinema. It's, um, it was made in 94, um, but it kind of established the indie cinema as, like, a force to be reckoned with. It won the Palm d'Or. It reintroduced the idea of, kind of, like, yeah, people going to watch interesting characters talking about sometimes not very interesting things, but things that people could relate to. So, kind of, like, you know, Madonna and things like this. It's... Um, which then means actually kind of like, yeah, completely ties into uh, the current wave of stand-up comedians just talking about like, yeah, nostalgia things from their childhood. So I suppose if, if you've done that, then... What do you do? What do you do as a follow-up? It's kind of like, yeah, do you just yeah, reinvent the wheel again? And I think that, yeah, he only had one era-defining zeitgeist movie in him and it's like kind of, uh, yeah, bless his heart. But um, What can you think of another era-defining zeitgeist movie since then? Um, that's... A film that has defined the 2000s in a way that Pulp Fiction defined the 90s. Do you know what? I can't. I can't think of. Uh, I think that I'm, yeah, there have been certain films that um, have really uh, yeah, defined a moment, and I'd say The Seven was a film that really defined a moment. It kind of like, I just remember that, just seemed to catch a mood. Everyone kind of like, you know, got into the idea of that film. So that, um, I'd say The Fight Club actually kind of like, I think, okay. you know, um, yeah, defined the end, that kind of like your yeah, millennial angst. The Matrix, I think. The I Matrix, mean. yes, yes, you're right. I think, I think there's a lot of films around, yeah, 99 was, yeah, Fight Club and The Matrix. They kind of like, yeah, they did define the anticipation of going into a, um, a new millennium. But, uh, but yeah, but Tarantino kind of think has uh, spent a lot of time afterwards just like, yeah, chasing, why not? Maybe not chasing, but kind of... Uh, trying to recapture. Trying to recapture, yeah, kind of like, yeah, what he achieved with his first two films, but Pulp Fiction in particular. I think he's come close here. I think it's kind of... Uh, but it just seems that, yeah, we are used to this now. It's kind of like, yeah, we're used to the way that he tells his his films now. So, yeah, so I think, I think you're right. I think this is like a cultural Western. But as somebody who kind of, like, was criminally young when... Um, <laughs> When Tarantino first kind of like yeah made his mark, what you know what do you make of this? What do you make of his films? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my my first experience of Tarantino uh, that wasn't in retrospect was Pulp Fiction. No, not, not Pulp Fiction. Um, Kill Bill. Right. And I've always enjoyed his work. I just I enjoy his work as entertainment. I don't think he's got. I don't. I don't take him seriously. I, as in, like, I, that's sorry. That sounds incredibly dismissive. I enjoy his work as entertainment as an incredibly talented filmmaker. I enjoy his work as uh, his, as films that I enjoy watching and that I think have value as films. But I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't read an interview of Tarantino and his ruminations and you know his thoughts on race or his thoughts on the, and and really go and really engage with that because you know he's he's a pop culture figure. Yeah, which isn't to say that pop culture can't comment on all of that stuff. I just don't think I th- I think he does it too earnestly and too. I'm not going to ham-fistedly might be, but too he's too eager to rush in. That's the thing, you know. I think if you just go in and try and read the hateful eight as a treatise on race and all these issues, you're going to probably come up with something really unpleasant. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that uh, he's it's interesting because he is in some ways an incredibly important filmmaker, um, inspired like kind of a generation of filmmakers. But you're right, I don't take his stuff seriously. I don't think there's any nuance to it. I think that it's, um, I think that you watch something like, you know, The Hateful Eight. And again, The Hateful Eight is a film that, not to spoil it, and I don't I think if you're like a fan of Tarantino, then you won't be surprised. But towards the end of the film, there are people pointing guns at each other. And it's like, well, you were doing this stuff over 20 years ago, mate. And you've been doing it ever since. And it's like, so even if you choose to tackle these big, themes of like race or World War Two, um, you still get down to people pointing guns at each other and it's like what else do you have to bring to the conversation here it's because um, that's the thing I think you know Pulp Fiction is his you know uh, is one of his few films that doesn't end with almost everyone dying Yes, that's yeah. That's that's actually that's a really a really good point. Yes, there is uh, most people survive that film, don't they? Which is and even those who don't survive the film, you know, still get narratively still, survive. Yes, indeed. Maybe to the end. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's um, which at the time was like just really clever, wasn't it? I mean, I kind of like yeah, we can give a I think we can give a spoiler for Pulp Fiction. It's you know, twenty two years old. One of the main characters in Pulp Fiction doesn't make it to the end of the film. But they do make it to the end of the film because there are flashbacks in it because it's like a Tarantino film, which means that you can off one of your leading characters and still give them a hero's exit. Which, and it just seems it just seems so simple now because I think that we've had films like Memento, which is told backwards and things like that. But at the time, that was just a really yeah, canny piece of filmmaking. And just since we have a microphone available here, and I've always kind of wanted to do this, the uh, the character in question is uh, Mr. Vincent Vega. <laughs> Very good. Um, then we kind of like yeah, wind forward to the hateful eight, and uh, and again like yeah, a new Tarantino film. I will always get excited by because I just remember the rush of seeing the first two movies. Well, I think I think you know the the road show completely ties into that because Tarantino films are event cinema. Yes, they might not always have something particularly nuanced to say, <laughs> but they're always going to be big and funny and smart and highly entertaining in a way that I think the roadshow format because you know it, it, it is spectacle cinema so I think the roadshow format with you know whether you know we're sort of you know Lawrence of Arabian not so I, 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 I don't know if Tarantino would appreciate this but I think Hateful Eight is less Lawrence of Arabia and more Cleopatra I would actually I don't know what I'd say about that because I I, I find them both incredibly dull movies but um, I would probably say it's more Lawrence of Arabia than just because Cleopatra is one of the most interminable films ever made and I think is almost impossible to sit through. Um, but I know what you mean in terms of... Well, it's, it's weird because you're right, it is yeah, spectacle cinema. Um, but the spectacle with The Hateful Eight, I think, is just the performances. It's like, yeah, kind of uh, a lot of it takes place in one location, which is, again, kind of like yeah, it's Reservoir Dogs, but you can go right back to the King Who film... Dragon Inn, which was made in '66, which is um, about a uh, um, a powerful eunuch in China who's controlling this area and wants to kill the children of his enemy that is just off, and they get uh, rescued by some sympathisers, and, and it all kind of like you know, um, 
meets at Dragon Inn, where the Unix forces and like yeah, the Freedom Fighters kind of all yeah, get together, and it all kicks off. And it's a great film, and it's well worth a look. Um, but uh, so this is basically Reservoir Dogs meets the Thing meets Dragon Inn. Again, like yeah, the hodgepodge of things meets. I would say an episode of yeah, Bonanza or of Rawhide because the whole big screen, widescreen sort of western. More in the fact that it's kind of like it's like a chamber piece, and it feels like the episode of Bonanza that would be made when they didn't quite have the budget to kind of uh, oh the uh, the bottle episode, the bottle episode. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a bottle episode. It's kind of uh, yeah, most of it takes place either in a stagecoach or in the haberdashery and so therefore you then have the spectacle of yeah watching yeah sam jackson and kurt russell and jennifer jason lee yeah do their stuff and i think there's not really a duff performance in there apart from zoe bell mace <laughs> yeah but i think i think yes i will <laughs> leave that uncommented upon well zoe bell is one of those characters like kind of uh she's she they always have to explain why she has a kiwi accent <laughs> And it's like, stop explaining, stop putting her in films if she has to. If you if you have to do hey, this, you know, sure, did they did they explain why Sean Connery had a Scottish accent in Hunt for the Red October? They didn't, but uh, I think they had to in this one. And it's like, it's nice that you give your friend work, but mm, it's distracting. Maybe, it is distracting. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it's a bit distracting. But what isn't distracting is the um, is the performance from every other cast member. I think. I mean, it's. Uh, it's just great watching Kurt Russell be larger than life. He's almost like Jack Burton in this film from Big Trouble in Little China. It's And uh, talking of Kurt Russell, is it time to move on to Bone? Bone. Um, do you have anything else to say about The Hateful Eight? No, I think we've covered it. I mean, the, the, the thing element is pretty huge. I mean, there, there is even a scene with them laying out sort of markers to follow in the event any of them wants to pop out to the privy. That's right. It's kind of uh, so it's, yeah, so they don't get caught in the um, snowstorm. Uh, Tarantino um, openly acknowledged that yeah, the thing was basically a yeah, template film for Reservoir Dogs. Um, not only in the way that it was in like yeah the structure of it, but in the way that it was shot as well. Um, so again, it's like, yeah, so 20-odd years later, he's just going back to that first film again, that kind of thing. He Progression, says, you honestly... Yeah, indeed, it's like, yeah, he's got a, he says he has two two more films in him. Maybe that's not a bad thing, it's kind of like, because I think that you've had one film in you, and you've been riffing on that ever since. Um, I don't know, we'll see. I just can't imagine him making a film like The Revenant, to be honest. But yes, I think that, uh, that Kurt is a nice uh, segue into Bone Tomahawk, which was a really nice surprise, I thought. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, my, my thoughts on Bone Tomahawk <coughs> is, of all of the uh, films we've mentioned so far, it is the purest Western. By which to say, you know, it is the Western that, although there are definite smatterings of other genres in there, it functions with most of what you'd expect from the genre. Yes, I would I would agree with that. As in, the basic setup of it, kind of to paraphrase, is that it's cowboys and Indians. Um... Although the the fearsome tribe in this, I think the film kind of like it points out aren't Indians. Um, they, it takes pains to point out. It takes pains to point out that, um, but in a way that I think is quite interesting because you were talking about kind of yeah, earlier about um, yeah that that horrible image of the noble savage and that kind sort of, of uh, condescending the condescending kind of yeah, element of that. Bone Tomahawk isn't condescending in that the the tribe of the um, Troglodytes, they're called in the film. They are savage. Yeah, they are utterly vicious and and monstrous. And they are, yeah, that's right. I mean, they are kind of uh, they in a way that I kind of think, and I think that this is actually a much more interesting film than the Hateful Eight, and actually than the Revenant as well. Um, In what does this mean? This is like a western, I think, that does have a certain amount of allegory to it and subtext and you could say that um, these are people that live in the you know the bad guys in this film you know, live in in the hills I mean this is kind of like yeah this could be a throwback to what you know, Wes Craven was doing with the hills have eyes um, and just that idea again of like kind of a repressed id or something kind of like you're yeah, coming back to uh, to Re- reclaim the land yeah, yeah it's um, so the uh, do you want to give the a quick rundown of the synopsis. A quick rundown. Well, uh, 
the film it doesn't open but the, the let's say the the film the, the main body of the film opens in this uh, idyllic community called bright rock which feels uh, bright hope bright hope that was it oh, i think we're getting confused with red rock here yes uh, bright hope which feels positively a little bit like a set because it is so clean and it's nice and it's not what you expect of a of a western sort of main street and uh kurt russell plays sheriff hunt you know the good man with a strong sense of order, and he's tough but fair. Uh, you've also got his deputy, or uh, backup deputy, deputy, which to say he's an amiable old buffer, uh, Chicory, played by Richard Jenkins, on great form. On great form, and there's also Bruder, who's sort of the local rake in his cream suit and you know very meticulous played by Matthew Fox. He's kind of like yeah the gunslinger, isn't he? He's kind of like the uh, yeah the mysterious figure that's kind of. Uh... Impeccably turned out, but is lethal with a sidearm. And uh, you also have Patrick Wilson as Arthur O'Dwyer, who's essentially like a, a cowboy, a ranch hand, a labourer who's laid up at home with a broken leg. And his wife, Samantha, who has some, who's you know very caring and loving and thinks he's a bit of a prat, <laughs> uh, in, in the best possible way, who's played by uh, Lily Simmons. What's interesting here is that she's the town doctor, one of uh... or assistant to the town doctor. The town doctor's a drunk. Oh right, that's a very good point. Yes, indeed. So, but uh, but to all intents and purposes, she is she stands. She's in. the person that they call on um, to to take care of um, David Arquette, who plays, plays uh, Purvis slash Buddy, depending on. Yes, that's right. Yes, who's kind of like clearly like a ne'er do well, um, who gets himself into an altercation and needs to be cared for, and then there's um, something happens, and uh, and they are abducted. And it, which requires, uh, just to stick to uh, actor names, Russell, Wilson, Fox, and Jenkins to all ride out together, despite um, Patrick Wilson, Arthur's broken leg, in order to bring them back. Yeah, which is kind of like, yeah, essentially the story of the searchers. Um, but it kind of, and yeah, it could be described if we've been a bit lazy, as the searchers meets the hills have eyes, which is a really heady brew, and I kind of think yeah, it makes a really interesting film. And you're right about yeah, Bright Hope. It does have that feel of um, it being slightly too perfect. It's um, but in a way that works really well with what comes later. It's an ideal. It's like yeah, and it's an ideal as well. It's um, all the houses are very clean. They're all painted in like a nice way. Um, do you remember the name of the? Of the local boozer, the something goat, the the, uh, the learned goat, the learned goat. So there's a real sense of this film having like yeah, this is yeah, civilization, an oasis of civilization in like a very arid landscape, and it doesn't take too long to ride out into the landscape before you are in yeah, danger basically. But I kind of saw this as like a Middle Eastern Western. It's kind of um, yeah, people who have no yeah, knowledge of the um, culture of, of the, the culture, yeah, desecrate land that turns out to be very sacred and uh, the locals then kind of yeah, come and wreak a retribution on them and then you have stand-up guys who are you know the heroes kind of yeah, going out into that land into a situation that they don't entirely understand um, and aren't really equipped to deal with quickly find themselves kind of uh, yeah, beset by the elements um, and by the landscape and also the pissed off locals which I thought made for a really, really interesting Western. Yeah, one thing I liked about it is it, it walks a surprisingly sort of delicate line between the, the drama and... Uh, and it, it's also very funny. You know, it's very sort of gentle in its humour. It's all character-driven. It all comes through the dialogue. But it's just, you know, it's people, you know, commenting on, you know, you know, Chicory is incapable of reading a book in the bath. And and you know possible possible solutions to that problem, or uh, and then on the other hand you have some really rather. There's only one scene which I'd classify as utterly hard to watch, but some pretty detailed gore. Yeah, there's some detailed gore. There's also wince-inducing, quite intimate kind of um, injuries that happen to people. There's um... intimate is the word. Yes, yeah. There is, uh, but there's. Um... There's a scene when someone gets a rock to the head and it sort of like, yeah, just knocks a bit of skin off their forehead. It's kind of, but you really get a sense that they have been, really been hit by something hard. And it just, yeah, makes you wince. But the, but I'm glad that you brought up the, um, the scene where they're talking about, yeah, reading a book in the bath and how can you do it without getting it wet? Because that could be something from like a Tarantino film. 
but in a Tarantino film, it would be kind of full of profanity and and overplayed. I think as well, it's kind of like yeah, because it would be there for the sake of of the dialogue rather than the, than for the sake of character. Whereas here, it's born out of character. It's just something that um, that occurs to this character while and again, kind of like yeah, proves that really he shouldn't be on this expedition because this is what's important to him and he's he's not equipped for it. Whereas on the other hand, you've got the Matthew Fox character. Who is very, who's largely equipped for it, but is perhaps not as pleasant company. And not to spoil anything, but it's interesting, kind of like, yeah, as things start to get rather bloody, who emerges from all of the, yeah, kind of all of the chaos. Um, had some real surprises there for me as well. So, and, and Kurt Russell is good, he's very Kurt Russell y. It's actually fascinating to watch this film back to back with The Hateful Eight. Because in the Hateful Eight here, he is larger than life. He is, he's Jack Burton. Um, ironically, in this film, he's more like McCready in The Thing. Or he's very much like a matter of fact, almost like a softly spoken um, character. He's who has a sense of duty about him. I like the fact that when yeah he says to the townsfolk that uh, that he and and the Patrick Wilson character have no choice but to go out on this expedition to try and retrieve the deputy. And the wife—that's that's what they have. That's what they they are duty bound to do. Everyone else has a choice in it. Yeah, I like that as him being an upstanding character, but also kind of like a character born of um, of the West. He has that great that great line when he's talking to um, the David Arquette character, kind of saying, "Yeah, the people that you've wronged should have a what is it? Should have chance to watch you turn purple on the rope or something like that." Which is exactly the same philosophy he has in Hateful Eight. Yes, it's kind of like, but he is the hangman that it's, yeah, justice being served, isn't it? But, um, but I think here, I think that the notion of justice and, like, yeah, revenge is much better explored in this film than in the Hateful Eight. But, uh... I think, I think the thing about this, about Bone Tomahawk, is it's not, it's, you know, it's a first-time director. Uh, S. Craig... Uh, what's it? S. Craig Zala, yeah, who's a Western writer. I think he's best known as a novelist. Oh, but okay. in this, he's he's writer, director. I think he's. I don't know if he's cinematographer, but I know he's pretty sure he does score. Yes, he's, he's like a real. Yeah, he's he's a real sort of you know all round craftsman. Yeah, and and that's the thing is is utterly just straight down the line. This is the story we're telling. We're not going to try and project something upon it. And I think it's it's. You know, it's unassuming, and it's you know, it's, it's not pretentious, and you know, I I don't think those are two descriptions that you know, for better or worse, you could apply to the Hateful Eight or the Revenant. Yeah, indeed. And I think the film really benefits from that. It benefits because it's. It, I think I I have to say I know this again. This is going to be. I I enjoyed Bone Tomahawk far more than I did the Revenant. Oh, me too. Quite simply because it feels like it is. It's there to be enjoyed in a way that the revenant isn't but it doesn't but it doesn't feel like it's there simply to be enjoyed in a way like the hateful eight is so it sort of negotiates it sort of you know takes the middle way yeah that's a really good point because i when i saw bone tomahawk i was surprised at how what it it wasn't the film that i thought it was going to be i thought it was going to be much more of a hateful eight type you know romp it's actually a much more subdued and quite sombre film. Um, it takes its time to get where it's going, but it's never boring. It actually has quite a kind of um, a melancholy feel, but um, that fits in really well with the characters. It fits in really well with the story. And yeah, I did, I, I did like the politics of the film. I thought that kind of like yeah, that it wasn't. It, it didn't try to um, uh, to really humanise the um, the bad guys in any way. It, it, it went out of its way to say these are not Indians; these are kind of like yeah, not yeah, Native Americans. It's... But it, these are, but we're not going to try to pass them off as like yeah, the noble savage. It's interesting that the person who sort of provides the information on the troglodytes uh, is in the film called the Professor is played by Zan McLaren, who is is Native American, and has recently shared a lot of screen time with Patrick Wilson in Fargo season two. Yes, he did. That's right, and. Uh, a baddie was a. He was a baddie. He was like a fearsome baddie. <laughs> um, Again, a, a mythical baddie. Sort of this, sort of, you know, not to quite to the same extent, but very much in the No Country for Old Men, uh, Anton Sugar vein. Yes, 
or, or the Lon Malvo yeah, yeah. from season one absolutely um, and that's what I like about it because he's only in that scene really um, uh, the same way that Sean Young's in this film and I did not recognise her and it was only at the end when I saw the credits that I realised that she's the mayor's wife yes. um, and it's like wow okay so she's in this film Sid Haig is in this film as well it's kind of uh, um, it's David Arquette's kind of like yeah buddy um, and yeah just you know Fred Millamed and yeah that, I mean that, it's basically composed entirely of great character actors some of whom have, you know, are best known for film others who've largely had their career on TV sort of you know Matthew Fox mm-hmm. Richard Jenkins I mean Richard Jenkins was Oscar nominated for The Visitor I believe a few for a film called The Visitor that's right yeah. a few years back but you know for me he's very much uh, Nathaniel Senior from Six Feet Under and yeah I, and that's the thing that Bone Tomahawk is quite small in scale uh, and that's, that's, that's unfair it's discreet yeah I think it's kind of it's a um yeah, it's, it's it's a hard film to describe because it's not epic, but it's it certainly gives you a great looking western. Um, it's a small cast of characters, um, and even though it's kind of set on like you know, these you know, wide open plains, it's kind of uh, it's actually quite a small story. But um, but it's I think the best way to say it is it is it is not pretentious. It is not a pretentious. It is a it is the kind of western that people who like westerns will go and. And not feel shortchanged by, but it's also an incredibly intelligent, I think, piece of filmmaking. Um, and yeah. James Tolkien's in it as well, of course, who was the um, is the bad teacher from Back to the Future. <laughs> ah. um, and, and yeah, it's a film that you know that that satisfies many different genres while never feeling like a mashup. You know, it, it, it's it's you know, it's, it, again, it's low key. Yeah, it and, is, and it's very it's it's smooth. It is, yeah. I was going to say this is like a, this is the film equivalent of sipping bourbon and smoking a particularly fine cigar. It's um, it is uh, while watching a wasp legs and a spider and having some thoughts about the the sort of you know horror of nature. Yes, indeed. Set against a really nice sunset. Um, think is this it, something we can do? I feel like I feel like that's a, that's an experience we now need to create. I think we do need to create it because that would be something I would like to experience more than what the characters in this film have to experience. It's an eighteen. It's an eighteen for ultimately not a lot of violence, but when the violence occurs, you certainly know that you're watching something pretty horrible. The uh, a, 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 a film that hasn't yet been released. This this isn't quite as explicit as that, but remind me on some points of Green Room. Yes, which uh, is the next? Who, who direct? Why well, don't I remember who directed Green Room? Is it? Um, it's the guy who did Blue Ruin, isn't it? And oh, uh, Jer- Jeremy Sol? No, not Jeremy Solnier. Uh, I think it is. I it's, think it's. Um, yes, it's directed by yeah Jeremy Solnier. Yeah, and yeah that that has very explicit, specific violence. Yes, and that's, and also I think also in the way it's. Um, more in Green Room, but it does kind of pop up in Bone Tomahawk. Is the you see something and it's kind of almost over before you realise what you've seen. Um, although there's a point in Bone Tomahawk where you are allowed to really savour what you're seeing because it goes on for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, the Green Room again kind of has that same threat of violence that carries throughout. Um, so that when you do see the violence, it has a real impact to it. So, for the only only thing I have to say about this film is the um, is the look because I think that these are yeah three westerns that are defined by their look and it's interesting. Um, so, the Revenant was made for something like one hundred and thirty million dollars. Um, the Hateful Eight, I think, was yeah, relatively or yeah comparatively cheap at forty million dollars. Bone Tomahawk. million dollars if IMDB is to be believed Um, and it's I think they got a bargain I mean I would have said that this is a I would have put the budget for this film at about 9 or 10 million dollars because of the location shooting and because of the stars and because it's a good looking film it it has it doesn't feel cheap and 1.8 million I mean that's cheap (laughs) yeah no, no they've all the, you know, it's incredible. It's got incredible production values. Every penny of that and more made it onto the screen. Yeah, 
It's um, and the only thing that I would say here is that um, I don't know for sure, but it would imagine it was shot digitally, and some of it looks digital um, in a way that the Revenant didn't. Um, some of the interior scenes um, in Arthur O'Dwyer's house in his bedroom had a slightly kind of uh, a digital HD look to it. I don't know if you thought if you thought the same, but uh, I, I absolutely I didn't particularly notice because I I think the visuals worked. Uh, that I you know I I usually can tell the difference between you know uh, between celluloid and digital, but on this occasion it wasn't something it didn't affect the look so significantly either way that it impacted my my viewing experience. No, certainly. I mean, I, I, I think it's a really good looking film, and I think that the scenes in the learned goat which are filmed in a kind of lower light um yeah looked absolutely fantastic and also all the stuff you know as soon as they hit the as they hit the trail um yeah they got their money's worth bone tomahawk i think gets our vote yeah i'd I'd say because you know largely because people are most likely to see the revenant or the regardless of any recommendation yeah i i I think that bone tomahawk is the kind of film that's going to get a limited release it will then appear on uh pay-per-view yeah, services like yeah, apple itunes or um, yeah, sky store and that's where i think that most people are going to see it um which isn't to say that it would look bad if they saw it like that i think you know it it would look good on a tv screen um but it is a film i think that people should should definitely seek out because it's a more interesting and I think a more accomplished film than The Revenant or The Hateful Eight. And I would second that. Well, on that, let's pour ourselves some uh, some sipping whiskey and watch the sun go down. <laughs> 